Let's set the scene. The cool night air gently floats around you. The crickets have begun their nightly serenade. Work is done for the day and you are sitting with your family and friends around the warm glow of the fire. We are currently within a space and time before civilization, before humans have begun to settle, not much further past the creation of crude structures and tools. This is where it all starts, where we learn that our intrinsic connection to the natural world influences almost everything we do, where we learn that to remove this connection is to face our own demise. We learn that not only is our connection intrinsic, we learn that we are a part of this beautiful, breathtaking process. Fast forward through time, growing and shifting and learning, and we forget. We forget that connection. We forget our place in the world, and with that, we forget a bit of ourselves. My goal here is to remind you where you stand within the natural world, and that place is smack dab in the middle of it, hopelessly entangled. The grand tapestry that evolution has woven has ingrained you so deeply within this beautiful web. It spans back to the beginning of life on Earth, to that primordial mix. The future of our planet depends on a collective realization of our place within it and demanding a seismic shift. Hear the stories, share the stories, change the world. This is Age of the Anthropocene with me, Michelle. Today, we are going to be talking about one of my most favorite bodies of water on this planet Earth. Call me a bit biased, and maybe it's because I'm from upstate New York, but the history and culture and ecology of the Hudson River, I think, bears repeating one more time. Starting off humbly, flowing from Lake Tear of the Clouds, a small body of water perched near the summit of Mount Marcy, New York's tallest mountain, the Hudson River flows down through the rocks, cutting an ever-widening channel. It runs through the high peaks, the lowlands, outside the Blue Line, down past the Troy Dam and into the Hudson Valley. Running through those mysterious highlands, the river becomes a mighty giant, yawning its banks to a three-mile stretch in Haverstraw Bay. It winds a path past Westchester, through the buzzing bright banks of Manhattan, before reaching its end at the New York Harbor, home to the Statue of Liberty, a suiting place to end where so many have met their beginning. Although the Hudson River flows for 315 miles from start to finish, 
Perhaps one of the most unique characteristics it retains is its connection to the ocean. The push and pull of the tide affects the river and its banks from the Troy Dam down to its end in the New York Harbor. Called the Mejia Cantuk by the Lenape, Mohegan, and Wappinger Native Americans, meaning the river that flows both ways, this section of the Hudson River is home to an estuary, one of the planet's most productive ecosystems. Now, I could spend the rest of this podcast listing off all of the interesting things about the Hudson River, beginning with the ecological and environmental factors and segue into the historical and eventually cultural. Instead, I am going to weave a story for you so that you can begin to understand how the Hudson River is the perfect example of how all of these things have woven together. The perfect example of how we have become ingrained within its banks. Thirteen thousand years ago, the first humans fought and pushed their way from the Bering Strait through the desert, past the plains. And as the thawing ice age progressed, it opened up the former icy tundra of the northeast. Eventually, these humans discovered the fertile soils of the Hudson River Valley and the geographic characteristics that made it a stronghold for anyone that lived there. They collected fish from the river shores, oysters from its southern reaches, learned to shape and grow plants along its banks. This abundance would become a defining factor in the Hudson's future. These people lived here, as people do, for thousands of years, fighting, falling in love, living, dying, making families, suffering losses together. They created cultures, religions, languages, lived fulfilling lives. These people would eventually come to be known as the Native Americans. And to them, the Hudson Valley its northern reaches, its southern harbor, was home. And in the 1600s, that would all change. And for the Native Americans, it would not be for the better. Buckle up, because we are only getting started. In 1609, Henry Hudson sailed up the Mejia Cantuk, funded by the Dutch East India Company. There, he met the Lenapes and the Mohicans. This visit signaled the beginning of European influence and colonization within the Hudson River Valley and the beginning of the slow decline of the Hudson River's waters. Also finding the river valley full of natural abundance, Hudson returned to the Netherlands and reported his findings to the crown. Within the next century, the Hudson River became the main artery for delivering goods and services to what is now considered upstate New York from New Amsterdam, the first European name of what is now New York City. 
Settled originally by the Dutch and later the English, the Europeans and Native Americans depended on the river for both transport and food. With the progression of industrialization, the river continued to absorb this burden, marking its slow decline. Remember how I said that being an estuary would tie in here? Well, the sheer biodiversity that the river provided meant that the Europeans viewed the river as a virtually limitless supply of resources. This may seem like an abrupt segue, but I want you to hang in there with me. I want you to imagine a fish. A fish lined with armored plates and appearing so archaic that those who have been lucky to lay eyes upon it would describe it as a modern-day dinosaur. It's not quite a dinosaur, but it did live through their extinction. The Atlantic sturgeon, a fish dating back over 280 million years, became one of the most popularly commercially fished animals within the Hudson River. They were so popular, in fact, that they earned their own nickname, Albany Beef, and the demand for their meat was only surpassed by the demand for their eggs. By 1905, only 20,000 pounds of sturgeon were reported to have been caught, down from 7 million pounds in 1887. This fish is extremely long-lived, and it takes a minimum of 13 years to reach sexual maturity. Once the population crashed, they never quite made it back to the levels of their heyday. Another interesting fish to point out is the oyster toadfish, a fish so ugly it has a face that only its mother could love. With a massive head and large jowls, it swims along the bottom of the Hudson River and feeds on crustaceans, mollusks, and fish. It emits a loud foghorn-like sound when removed from the water and also has venomous barbs on its fins that pack a punch as strong as a wasp sting. If you can't tell, I'm smiling because this is one of my favorite fish. Its resilience is really what I want to show here. They can survive out of water for long periods of time, live in terrible water conditions, and have been shot into space by NASA so they could study the effects of microgravity on otolithic organs. What I'm trying to get at here is that the fish of the Hudson River have stories of their own. Because they exist, they have intrinsic value, for better or worse. Overfishing almost destroyed their stories, not only because of the population decline, but because it contributed to the growing overarching theme that the Hudson River was a dirty place. I want you to close your eyes and imagine waking up to the gentle rocking of your ship within the Hudson River's waters. It's morning. You sit up and take in the unique, rich scent of wood and pitch 
and must that only exists in old wood boats. You shake off the cobwebs of sleep, have a big stretch and slip out of bed. You come up the stairs to the deck of the ship to greet the cool morning. As the condensation hits your face, you look around and see steep mountains surrounding you, half covered by the morning mist that has not yet lifted. An eerie silence and water as calm as glass gives you a sense of magic, of fae folk living just behind that boulder on the shore. You hear birds chirping in the distance, and maybe, do your ears deceive you, the sound of a flute dancing through the treetops. The Hudson River Highlands, the inspiration for Washington Irving to craft the tale of Rip Van Winkle, a man lured into the Highlands by mysterious spirits, where he agrees to play a game. And we all know you never make an agreement with the Fey folk. He then falls into a deep slumber and wakes up to a new world where he is then informed that he was tricked by the ghosts of Henry Hudson's ship, the Half Moon. The magic of the Hudson River and its shores again inspired Irving to write the infamous tale of Ichabod Crane in Sleepy Hollow. And the river hasn't just inspired people to write famous tales. It inspired an entire movement on the Hudson River called the Hudson River School Painters, founded by the likes of the artist Thomas Cole. The movement became known from its depiction of human and nature, combining and coexisting as one. One only had to see the majesty of the Hudson River to understand the connection it has to the people who have lived within its shores. Unfortunately for the Hudson, this would not stop European colonization and the founding of the United States of America from exploiting the Hudson River and causing so much damage that today it still recovers. In Manhattan, the oyster beds were once so plentiful, you only had to pay pennies to get an all-you-can-eat oyster buffet along the riverfront. The eelgrass beds and the oyster reefs were thick and plentiful. They provided habitat for the animals that lived there, further ensuring the survival of the rich ecosystem. They also provided natural buffers to strong weather events, slowing down and disseminating the force of storm surges. By 1900, they were all but gone from the severe pollution of Manhattan's waters, overfishing and the destruction of the well-established oyster beds that provided safe haven to the estuary's residents. The oyster life cycle is much different from ours. Starting out life as an actively moving organism, a freely swimming larva, or spat, moses along and stumbles across members of its own kind. Much like humans, oysters depend on each other for survival. The young spat attaches to the shell of an older member of the same species, and it creates, over time, a complex structure known as an oyster reef. 
With these reefs gone, the Hudson River estuary ecosystem begins to collapse. So, just to recap, so far in this story, we have lost our sturgeon, we have lost our oysters, and we have pushed out the Native Americans from their traditional territories. Prepare yourself, because it's going to keep going downhill from here. By the time the 30s and 40s have rolled around, the Hudson River has become nearly unrecognizable compared to the historic majesty of its waters. Chemicals, nutrients, sewage, waste are all being dumped in its waters with a regularity that is astonishing. Between 1947 and 1977, General Electric would dump between 500,000 to 1.5 million pounds of polychlorinated biphenyls, or PCBs, into the Hudson River. By this time, trains, planes, and cars had taken over as the main form of transportation, and the river had been widely accepted as filthy. The barges sailing up and down its waters gave little to no attention to the ecological disaster going on beneath their hulls, because they quite simply did not know and did not care to know. The Clean Water Act would not be passed until 1976. The contamination of the Hudson River from PCBs, cadmium, and countless other pollutants would render the fish in a large portion of the Hudson River inedible. The half-abandoned pier system of the western edge of Manhattan had water so contaminated that to go into them meant the strong possibility of contracting things like hepatitis, giardia, and other harmful diseases and infections. At this point, the Hudson River has hit its most contaminated. In 1966, a man named Pete Seeger, one of the grandfathers of American folk, built a boat. Not just any boat, a boat that had been modeled after the Dutch sloops of days past. One just for the Hudson River. A Hudson River sloop, if you may. And that's it. That's the name of the type of boat. Not meant to sail in open waters of the ocean, these smaller sloops were designated to navigate the Hudson's waters with ease and grace. Pete was an outspoken advocate for many issues. The Civil Rights Movement, where he popularized the use of the hymn, We Shall Overcome, to the Environmental Movement, where he wrote the popular Sailing Up My Dirty Stream about the Hudson River. He spent years searching for plans, debating dredging up an old sloop, and finally settled on building one himself. By 1970, Pete was fed up. He had realized that in order to clean up the Hudson River and all of the other rivers in America, he was going to have to make some bigger moves. So, in 1970, he took the sloop Clearwater, the name of his boat, sailed down into the New York Harbor, into the ocean, and down to Washington, D.C. to make sure that everyone knew he meant business. Luckily, even though the Clearwater was not built for the open ocean, it arrived to port safely. 
When he got there, he held a forum on Capitol Hill to draw attention to America's waters and their severe neglect. In 1972, the Clean Water Act was passed, and Pete and his boat are credited to this day as being instrumental in a part of that process. The tide begins to shift here, but the shift is not without its bumps. The next and final story I want to share with you is the fate of Manhattan's west side. Remember earlier in this story, I talked about all the harmful pathogens, bacteria, and infections you could get from the Hudson River in Manhattan? Well, by the 90s, the river was doing much better. There was a moratorium placed on any and all sturgeon within the river. GE had begun its massive cleanup of the PCBs it had dumped and water quality within the river had steadily increased since the 70s. Manhattan's Lower West Side, however, was still a decaying jungle of concrete, rusty nails, and woefully unstable abandoned piers and outbuildings. The city was constantly arguing about what to do with it, and they finally settled on ripping out the old piers, filling in the Hudson, much like they had done during the construction of the Twin Towers, and running the West Side Highway underground. Now, the thing you need to know is the fact that even though the section of the Hudson still had a long way to go, the small wooden support pieces of leftover piers, called pile fields, provided home and shelter to a very important fish, called the striped bass. This is no ordinary fish. Growing to be approximately 30 inches, this striking black and white fish returns to the Hudson every year to spawn, and with it, a major New York economic driver. In 1997, it was estimated that the striper season spurred approximately 619,132 angler hours within the Hudson River watershed. Imagine the bait, tackle, equipment, fuel, food, and lodging purchased in order for those man-hours to occur. The striped bass is a very important fish in New York. And that is why it is responsible for taking down an all-but-an-approved, massive, blow-your-mind, multi-million dollar underground highway project. It never happened. Taken down by a fish. Never underestimate your power. Nowadays, the portion of land west of the West Side Highway, running from the Battery all the way up to Clinton Cove, is a park. Hudson River Park, to be exact. 400 acres of that park are an estuarine research reserve, with strict guidelines and regulations about what can and cannot occur within its waters. If you ever have a chance to visit, I highly recommend it. Watching the birds feed on the pile fields at low tide or visiting an educational program is well worth your time. And that concludes sharing the Hudson River story for today. It is a striking portrait of humanity and its influence on the environment. It does a great job of showing our intrinsic connection to the natural world and 
that means that we are not separate from nature. We are very much a part of it. And now it's time for the change the world part of the podcast. Do I think that sharing this story is going to immediately cause every person who listens to it to go out and dedicate their entire lives to the Hudson River? I would love for that to happen, but it is simply not practical. My goal for this section is to provide you with the tools and information you need to become active in your community about something similar to the plight of the Hudson. Clean water is a human right and the entire balance of the planet hinges on us making sure that we take care of it. Although individual actions, like reducing your plastic waste and not dumping harmful chemicals into the stream in your backyard, are useful, real change happens at the community level. In New York, individual action led to community action, which created a plastic bag ban across the entire state. This is the type of change community action can lead to. If you want to become involved in keeping your community's water clean, I would start with spending some time online looking up community action groups in your area. If there are no clean water action groups, try finding adjacent groups like your local farmer's market or even calling your local governmental office to ask about any committees you can become involved in. Community action is where we collectively demand seismic shifts. The three things to remember about this wonderful part of American democracy are one, be active, two, be civil, and three, be willing to listen. If you become involved with an already established group or decide to create one yourself, there will be people in the room who know a lot about this subject. Please listen and learn. It will make you a better advocate. Advocacy is tough. It can be disheartening, but just because something is difficult does not make it not worthwhile. So go forth, share the stories, change the world, or at least your little piece of it. Join me next time for more stories on Age of the Anthropocene. Thanks for listening, guys.